I'd like you to open your Bible to its very first page, the book of Genesis, chapter 1. You may know if you're with us that I spent almost two years working our way through the gospel of Matthew. It is not only my habit to preach through books, but to try to alternate so that we hear the Old Testament message as well as the New. So I knew after Matthew we were going to the Old Testament, but beyond that I was not certain where. I had several candidates I wanted to consider, and it actually wasn't an easy choice and only was made about two weeks ago. Back in 1995, when I was rather new here, I did spend some time, those with a longer memory might know that I worked through some of the early chapters. I did that in a swifter fashion than I intend to this time, especially in the first couple of chapters, the creation narratives, I want to go slowly. And I want to try to work on these important, vital subjects from this book that lays so many different kinds of foundations for us about the truth of God, not just in science or how our creation came about, but in human affairs, who we are as people, how different ideas of worship and family and many things came into being. So we're going to take the first 11 chapters, which are rather foundational in Genesis, and at least work through those. I'm not sure if we'll go beyond 11 or not. I'll decide that as we get closer. But that unit, at least, is understood as a very important foundational piece of Scripture. So give ourselves to it now. And today, just to a very short little part of it, as I'll read Genesis 1 through 3, and then just add beside it the first two verses of the 90th Psalm, which is also written by the same human author, Moses. Listen to God's Word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Moses also was inspired by God to write this psalm, Psalm 90. It begins this way, Lord, You have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the earth or the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Father, we ask that you unite our minds to think carefully and deeply of what your wonderful word was given to teach. May you be the one who instructs us in all things for your honor and praise through Christ. Amen. I ask you to imagine that one day you are exploring a trunk of belongings that you know has things in it that belonged even to your great-grandparents. And you're surprised to notice something in the trunk that had never come to your view before, In a small case hidden behind things, you take out a fine pocket watch such as men wore a hundred or more years ago. It's on a matching chain. It contains, obviously, gold and silver and filigreed designs incised on the case. You open it up. Out of curiosity, you wind it. 
You find not only does it still tick, but after it ticks for a few hours that it's keeping perfect and precise time. Maybe you're curious enough that you even pry the back off and look at the mainspring and the gears working together in the wonderful arrangement that a watchmaker designs for such a mechanism to have. And your mind is full of questions as you look at the beauty of this timepiece. You, you wonder, who did this belong to? Who made it? Where, where was it made and for what purpose? Was it for something special? It's obviously uh, very unique, not just an everyday watch. And perhaps based on the name of a company engraved on the back of the watch, you were able to, you can do these things easily today, do a computer search, and you found that the Swiss company that made the watch is still in business. You contacted them and sent them photographs, and, and they contacted you quite excited to tell you that you possess a prize example from one of their finest watchmakers who ever lived in the 19th century, and that, in fact, it is their estimate that what you have in your hand is nothing less than the finest watch that this fine watchmaker ever made, and it was a watch commissioned for a gift to the king of Belgium. Well, all of a sudden, now you don't simply have a a mechanism, a cold piece of metal and steel and gold in your hands. You have something almost alive. You have a story of, of something created because now you not only know the watch, you know the watchmaker. This is what we see in Scripture. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies tell the work of His hands. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says, Since the very creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and His Godhead have been clearly seen, being understood from what He has made. As we embark on a study of the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, we're about to meet the watchmaker of the universe. Now, we could learn a lot about him if all we did was study what he has made. If we could just look at at the, the rocks and the mountains and the oceans and the stars in their constellations, we could learn a lot about him, and we could say, someone wonderful is displayed here. But we have even more than that to study. We have the direct revelation this God has given through a human author, Moses, in which the creator of everything has told us an astonishing account about himself in what is called the book of beginnings, the very first book that we call our Holy Bible. You know, there's still today, with all the sophistication that science has attained to, an attitude in some quarters at least. Not all scientists would think this way, but there are those who say something all but just as blunt as this. That if we would take raw elements that would go into the making of a watch, the elements of iron, gold, silver, silicon, carbon, And if somehow those raw elements could be placed in a tumbler machine 
and that tumbler could be turned on so that it would run for an endless time. Its motor would never burn out and it would in fact run for millions of years. There are those who by their secular materialistic theories are telling us in so many words that if that tumbler ran long enough, we could open it up at the end of millions of years and out would come a watch. And not only would it be a watch, it would be a ticking watch. And it would be a ticking watch set to the exact hour of time in which we find ourselves. Now you say that's absolutely ridiculous. And yet that is the essence of a pure materialistic theory by which some people say all things came into being. And bizarre as that theory sounds, it is we who say it is bizarre who are held up for ridicule when we offer the counter theory that the universe did not come into being by a pure materialistic design of chance acting over millions and millions of years, but rather that we would explain the natural origin of butterflies and whales and Olympic gymnasts and divers by the supernatural work of the divine designer God himself. That seems ridiculous to them, just as their theory seems ridiculous to us. The book called Genesis is a precious gift from God. It is the opening, of course, of both the Hebrew Torah and the Christian Bible. And it introduces God as the prime character and man as his subordinate and yet honored creation. In the first three chapters of Genesis, we have some of the most important pages we could ever imagine confronting. We meet God here as the implicit king over the whole cosmic order of things, creating fruit flies and elephants and glaciers and rainforests and black holes in space and things we cannot even comprehend. And not only that, we are told that he simply speaks these things into existence. These chapters teach us about man, that man and woman, as we know ourselves today, we are not simply advanced germs of some kind who sprouted legs and managed to crawl up out of the primordial slime, but rather that we are creations of God, stamped with something of who God himself is upon us in our knowledge and our spirituality and our ability to relate to him and know him. And we're taught all kinds of things about humanity here, how it was that we were tempted and fell into sin so that not only do we have the glory of God stamped on us, but we have a deep flaw that creates a problem. We learn a little bit about sexuality and marriage and the family in this book. We learn about the origins of nations and language, the beginnings of worship. There's so much here. In fact, a Bible without Genesis in it would be like a bridge, a vast bridge across a wide river that had no piers to support it anywhere along its entire span. And so this book begins with a sentence that in English has seven words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Not a theologian, but a physicist named Arthur Compton once said, those are the most tremendous words ever penned. The simplicity of the statement that they make belie the profound depth of what they speak about. But even as I normally would take for you a text that would be a column in your Bible or a a section or sometimes even a whole chapter, I'm not even taking the seven English words of Genesis 1-1 as a text today. It's too much. I'm only looking at the first four English words. In the beginning, God. In the Hebrew, Bereshith Elohim, two words. The two greatest words, perhaps, that the Scripture contains. I hope next week we'll get to the verb of this sentence. The first point from Genesis 1-1 is to declare this, that history and space and time all have had an absolute beginning. History, space, and time had an absolute beginning. You know, they say if you study philosophy, you'll hear this bantered about at some point in time, but it actually is a question that you'll hear in science as well. The question, why is there something instead of nothing? Think about that. That's enough to keep you busy all day if you really think about it. Why is there something instead of nothing? Well, obviously, you can't answer that question, chiefly because nothing is a concept you are not capable of dwelling on. You've never experienced true nothing. In fact, Jonathan Edwards, who thought about things like this, once wrote that nothing is what sleeping rocks dream about. You you can't get it into your mind. And yet you wonder, why indeed is there something and not nothing? Well, the Bible's opening postulate is that once there was the infinite and eternal God and nothing else. But then he, by a sovereign decision, spoke worlds into existence. And so matter and energy, and yes, Einstein showed us that time was part of that equation too, even time had a beginning. And the source of all that is the being of the eternal God. Now, one question people want to know right away when we begin with Genesis is, are we dealing here with actual history? Should this be read as the description of real events? There are those who say, well, the best way to treat it is as some kind of a poem. And indeed, the Bible contains poetry. However, We can say that this is not primarily poetry. First of all, it's not structured like Hebrew poetry. When you read the Psalms, you find out what Hebrew poetry is. And that's not the structure and it's not the type of language that the Psalms or that Genesis is chiefly made up of. There are places where creation is spoken about in terms of poetry. If you wanted an example, look at Psalm 104, verse 2, just a quick example where We read of God creating in sort of a poetic way with using metaphors. God wraps himself with light as a garment and stretches out the heavens like a tent. That's poetry. But Genesis is not written as poetry. 
While other people say, okay, it's not poetry, then it's some kind of mythology. Well, Christians, of course, kick back against that because automatically the word mythology speaks about something false, not really true. There are those who would say, no, the word mythology can be a way of casting reality that is not exactly the same as history, but it's the way we imagine it to be that that fits the facts. That's a little hard to get a hold of, actually. And there are those who say, you know, we know that there are ancient mythologies or legends about the creation from other early Near Eastern civilizations like Babylon. They had a legend of creation called the Enuma Elish. There was another ancient one called the Gilgamesh Epic. And these were stories of polytheistic gods, many different gods sort of warring over things and, and you know, in the whole swirl of events, creation came about by what these so-called gods did. There are those who say, well, the Enuma Elish from Babylon looks like it's more ancient than Genesis. And as a matter of fact, Moses was educated in Egypt where he would have known those kinds of things. They would have been taught to him in an Egyptian classroom. So it seems like Moses either consciously or subconsciously sort of borrowed from these legends and we have Genesis. Well, no, that's not the case. Primarily because what we see in Genesis 1 is more like a firm repudiation of those fanciful stories, not of many gods in their wars and their legendary love affairs and all of that bringing forth a child that creates the world. It is the simplicity and the profundity of one God before everything speaking it into existence. No ancient legend is nearly as bold as that. Now, if we look at the later part of Genesis, if we were put your finger in chapter 12 and, and go onwards through 50 throughout that book, it's a long book, you'll realize, if you don't already know it, that Genesis tells about the lives of historic people, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and so on. And it reads very much like a history book once chapter 12 or so gets rolling along. And what we find is that that portion of the book is as much history as any telling of George Washington and the winter he spent with his troops at Valley Forge or any event that you would call human history. And the interesting thing is there's a unity in Genesis. There's not suddenly a break that says, well, this is one thing, and now we're going to go into what's real Genesis is a unity. And just as the closing events of human lives are history, so is the opening of it. A great Old Testament scholar from Philadelphia, E.J. Young, wrote about it once, and Young said, God has shown us as much as he wanted us to know about his creation, and it is historical. That is, it took place. But Young and others went on to say that it is unique history. Because, of course, it describes the cosmos being formed when there were no human reporters or eyewitnesses there to say, I saw this. You know, nobody could say, I witnessed this. I heard Abraham say this. There were no human witnesses of the creation. Therefore, we must know this history in a different manner. We know it by the revelation of God and by that means only. And what we find is it's not like your daily diary, you know, that you might write in it every day and 
and say, you know, the temperature today was 87 degrees and sunny, and, and I went shopping at Costco and, and uh, cleaned the, the bathroom, and you give the exact little details of your life, it's not that kind of history. It's more a broad strokes history that does tell you things that actually happened, but tells them not as a science textbook or a diary or even a historical biography would necessarily tell it. It is unique history. It is a narrative given by the inspiration and revelation of God himself who showed the mind of Moses things that no man had ever witnessed. Now, we know that Moses wrote this history down approximately 15 centuries before the time of Christ. And he was writing many centuries after the time when Adam, his first ancestor, had existed. And so we can say he only could learn it if God, the Spirit of God, revealed to his mind things that he did not know. John Calvin had a comment about that. Calvin said, we accept the fact that God's Spirit can inspire a prophet to see ahead of events that haven't happened yet in the distant future. Why then would we say that the Spirit of God is any less able to show events to a man that had happened in the past that he was not there to witness? You see, when Genesis 1-1 addresses why there is something instead of nothing, it doesn't say in the beginning there was nothing. It says in the beginning there was God and nothing else. And from God and by God's power and by God's fiat command, everything else came into being that we now know. Matter, energy, time. They all had absolute beginnings with the pre-existing and infinite God. Well, let me build on that. In the second place then, Genesis 1-1 teaches us that God's eternal pre-existence God's eternal preexistence is the Bible's main presupposition. That's a $4 word, but it's a word you need to know. Everybody approaches life with ideas that they take for granted, and then they test their ideas against the reality that they see before them. People may not all acknowledge this, but everybody has presuppositions. Nobody can come into this world or approach life with a blank slate and say, I'm just not going to assume anything. I'll just take whatever life should. No, you have some concepts, some things that you trust, some things that you believe may be true as you enter life. And we call these presuppositions. We proceed with these things and we test them out and we look around us and we say, does my presupposition fit what I see going on? And if it fits, then I gain more and more confidence in it. And I keep on testing it throughout my life. And it, if it seems to remain true throughout my life, I say, well, this is a trustworthy principle. Well, please, please notice that the eternal existence of God is the number one main presupposition that the Bible begins with. It is the launching pad for everything. Moses didn't begin this book and say, Now I am about to write about God. Therefore, the first thing I will need to do is give you several classic proofs for the existence of God. There are such things that philosophers discuss, so-called proofs, but that isn't where this starts. 
The existence of the high and mighty God who inhabits eternity is assumed here. His name is Elohim. It's a plural name. I'll comment on that next time. And that name, Elohim, occurs some 35 times in the first chapter. In other words, he's the subject. He's the subject not just of the first sentence, but the whole chapter, and for that matter, the whole book. And if you look down and just see how many times the little word God is there, you see God created, God saw, God said, God divided. And the most elementary English would tell you God's the subject. He's the subject relating to every verb in this opening book. He indeed is the one who created out of nothing. Now, there are so many theories, and we'll glance off some of these as we go along, but you know well that science often wants to talk about a so-called Big Bang moment of origins. There was a time in science when the theory, the steady state theory, or what we might call uniformitarianism, reigned when they said, well, there's matter, and, and matter has just always been. There wasn't a time when matter didn't exist. Well, most scientists don't go there anymore. They all go now to some kind of a beginning, and the idea of a so-called Big Bang, we don't know what else to call it, is fairly popular in the scientific world. But the Christian can always say what existed 30 seconds before there was a Big Bang. In other words, what exploded What was there before that bang took place? And in Isaiah 44, verse 6, we hear the Bible's great presupposition claimed again. As the Lord says, I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no God. There is, in fact, nothing. I am before everything. God confronts us as the cause before all causes. He's not involved or captured within the laws of cause and effect. He is the cause with a capital C. He alone is self-existent. And everything else that exists depends for its origin upon him. He's also self-sufficient, we learn further as we go into the Bible. I'm getting a little beyond Genesis 1-1 in stating this, but it's worth just mentioning now. God has no needs As we learn more and more about him in the Scripture, we learn there isn't anything we can do for him that is going to enrich him. He doesn't require our sympathy or our encouragement or our helping hand in anything that he does, even though he wants our companionship because he loves us. That God can choose to do whatever he wants to do, and if he does it without us, that's fine. Ephesians 1.11 says that God works out all things in conformity with the purpose of his own will. Not your will. And we're always learning that lesson, aren't we? We're pretty sure that he's supposed to work it out in conformity with the purpose of my will. And that's one of the great spiritual struggles. This God is self-existent, he's self-sufficient, and he's personal. He's not simply an abstract principle of physics. He's not an it. We use the personal pronoun he when we speak about God with good reason. Because if he was not personal, then where in this creation that he made would we have anything 
more than what the science textbook can tell us. Where would we find love or beauty or mercy or compassion or friendship or fellowship or any of those things if God, the origin of everything, is not a personal God? So I'm just insisting here in the second place that the biblical presupposition from which we work forward and we try to ask, does everything fit this presupposition? If it doesn't fit, if it doesn't work, then at some point we're going to have to throw the presupposition out. But the Bible's presupposition is God's eternal preexistence. And all truth, all meaning, all purpose, all beauty, all goodness in our world has to trace its origin from that source, the eternal God. Well, thirdly, for this morning, just looking at these first few words, we ought to ask, what difference does all this make? It sounds very grand. It sounds amazing. It sounds far greater than our minds can take in. But there's another truth to see as we think about Genesis 1-1, and it is this, that every believer's first obligation is to bow low before this God of Genesis. Our obligation is to bow low before this God. You see, the last book of the Bible, there's great unity in the Bible. Sometimes people never see it. The, the last book called Revelation opens in chapter 1 of that book. Revelation 1.8 says this as it's depicting Jesus Christ, the second person of this triune God, speaking and stating, I am the Alpha and Omega who is, who was, and who is to come, I am the Almighty. Now, those are great truths in that verse of Revelation 1.8 that are being drawn together that started way back here in Genesis 1.1, the preexistent God. There he is in the, in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus the Son saying, I am the one who is, who was, and who is to come. I am the Almighty. What this means is that creation's author is over the entire span of everything that happens from that Big Bang moment, if that's a proper way to speak about it, until the very conclusion when Christ, the eternal Son, will bring the history of this planet and all the physical world that we know to a consummation and a conclusion as he returns gloriously in time. The span of everything contained in matter and energy and time, is summed up in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We don't consider this enough. You know, a book written a generation ago, a little tiny book, it's still around today, J.B. Phillips' little paperback called Your God is Too Small. We all have a tendency to put God in little boxes, to keep Him small. We do that because... We have to be able to manage him as a concept. And it's impossible to manage him as large as he is in the Scripture. And so we, without even intending to do it, we remake him. And, of course, that's, the Bible calls that idolatry, anytime you're making a new image of God. And we're like little children, like three-year-olds, who have just begun to get some facility with their crayons, you know? And, and they make drawing, and, hey, Papa, that's who I am in my family, 
Papa, this is you from a three-year-old. I look at it. It doesn't look like me. It doesn't look like what the mirror tells me I look like. But in the three-year-old image, that's me. That's what we do with God. We simplify him. We reduce him. And then we do an amazing thing. We worship the image that we've drawn of him. A.W. Tozer wrote a number of years ago, few of us have ever let our hearts gaze in wonder at God, the great I am, the self-existent self in back of everything because such thoughts are too painful for us. Tozer said we prefer to think about so-called practical things like how to build a better mousetrap. And indeed, that's what we do. You know, this word Elohim, the name for God that occurs in Genesis 1, is a word that's root meaning is fear or terror. There's actually a hymn in our hymn book. We've never sung it. I, I could just imagine the responses I'd get. It's not really a great hymn to begin with, but the title would throw all of you, and you'd all dump on me with criticism. But you can look it up. It's in the book. The, the title of the hymn is God the All-Terrible. Ha. Huh. As I know you Presbyterians are skewed, but what if you got a hymn like that in your hymn book? God, the all-terrible? Well, that's really what Elohim is saying. God is so tremendous, so powerful, so to be feared, that if mankind would see him and know him as he is, they would fall down in terror before him. You see what Adam and Eve did as we get farther along to chapter 3, and their sin was being exposed, and they were... And God was approaching and calling to them. They had had friendly fellowship with him before, but what did they do when they knew their sin was exposed? They ran and they hid from the terror of this God. Well, my point in closing today is to have you understand that this same powerful, unimaginable, yes, terrible God who made everything, who breathed his breath into you and who could extinguish you by the breathing of his breath if he chose to. This same God amazingly came forth in history and space and time in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And he did that to die for lost souls whom he chose by his own sovereign idea. He chose to redeem those. You know, there's a beautiful, amazing clue in the 17th chapter of John when Jesus is praying the night before he died, that great high priestly prayer. And one of the things he said is, Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. And he prayed and said, Father, now give me back the glory I had with you before the foundation of the world. There's an amazing insight, you see. Christ the Son and His Father in eternity. And then Christ coming forth into history to take on the degradation and the shame and the pain of human sin and saying, Father, out of this you're going to redeem glory and I'm going to return to what I had before. You see, it's an eternal plan that's going on with Christ and with us. Ephesians 1.4 says that every Christian believer was, quote, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Titus 
1-2 says, we were promised eternal life before the beginning of time. Wow! Does that get to you? It leaves me dizzy that this Creator God was designing all this, but His design included sending His Son for you and me. You see, the God who existed is not only terrifying Creator, He is the beloved Redeemer. And God's people would be reclaimed and brought back to Himself. So yes, we must bow before this God. You must bow before this God. If you stand with a straight back and refuse to bow before him, at the end of time, you'll be crushed by him. But when you bow before him, not in terror, there's a way to bow. And Isaiah 57, verse 15 tells about it. As God says, I dwell in a high and holy place, I am great. But I also dwell with him who is humble and contrite in spirit, with the lowly one, to revive the spirit of the lowly and the heart of the contrite. You see, the tremendous God of Genesis 1-1 is the God who, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we also call my Father. The Scriptures are wonderful. Bow low before Him who is both Creator and Father by the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, how great, how amazing You are. How many-sided is the Bible's revelation of You. We've only begun We ask, our God, that you would let us wonder at you, revel in you, reverence you, but at the same time be drawn to you because of your gracious coming to us through Jesus Christ. Amen.